Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here tonight with Bruce McCurdy. Welcome, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing? Ah, a little PO'd, I got to tell you. But uh, I'm getting frustrated watching this team get blown out on its home ice. Yeah, the second they tied the game, Bruce, I just was, I could hardly breathe waiting for what seemed to me the inevitable. The inevitable shoe to drop? Yeah. Like a jazz boot? It was a great comeback. It really was exciting mm-hmm. to see that and, and, and good to see that. But uh, they just couldn't maintain it. And the Oilers lost 6-3 to the Carolina Hurricanes. The They tied it in the third period. The Oilers did. They came back from a 3-0 deficit, which is a pretty major accomplishment in the NHL to tie it. But then um, uh, three goals by Carolina. And Bruce, it was like um, the Oilers outchance Carolina on grade A chances um, 12 to 10 this game. Carolina, though, scored on one grade C chance or one grade F chance, as uh, my old boss Murdoch Davis just said on Twitter. But Carolina's chances, Bruce, were... F for, it, like, fix auto, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. I love it, those commercials. It was... The, the 10 grade A chances were... At least five of them were, like, triple A chances. Like, you know, oh. just almost gimmies. It, it was like the Oilers were playing Red Army tonight. That's what it reminded me of. Harlem just the, Globetrotters was what I was saying to my wife, but yeah. Just just the way that they, you know, move the puck around with such extraordinary skill. It was actually pretty lovely. <laughs> I, hate it to, I hate to say that, but, you know, it really was. The way I Tara like Vinan and I... I like Carolina, and I liked their game tonight a lot. The way they move the... They are such... The Oilers weren't outworked. They were outsmarted. Uh, in this game tonight and Carolina just such a smart and skilled hockey team very impressive and uh, they really know how to play the game of hockey so this is our two good things two bad things and two numbers podcast Bruce uh, what are you going to go with your good thing well I got to go with the Oilers three goal comeback I guess I mean they were down three nothing uh, after the first period dead and buried really after the first and they managed to push their way back in the game with one in the second. And then after quite an extraordinary series of events early in the third that saw the Oilers blow a minute plus five on three and a penalty shot, and then somehow managed to uh, score a goal just at the end of the second power play, and then minutes later they tied it up, and it looked like, uh, well, we might be in for an exciting finish here, but I had the same sense of foreboding and dread that you did. Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough. What, I mean, first shot of the third period. Like the Oilers had outshot them seven or eight nothing at that point. And Carolina literally gets one chance and bam. But uh, you give Oilers credit for at least not not caving altogether. Rather than just getting blown out once by the Hurricanes, they effectively got blown out twice. <laughs> That's my good Well, they thing. are the Hurricanes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know that McDavid. There's a with with our scoring chance project. We don't count shots that miss the net, and there's a lot of debate about this, right, in the NHL, yep. even in the coaching fraternity. Oh, I understand. And Roger Nielsen, who who invented this, went both ways. He initially counted shots that all the scoring opportunities, and then he just 
he focused on only the shots that hit the net. And, and Tom Rennie did that. And it was Tom Rennie who convinced me, just focus mm-hmm. on the shots that hit the net. Because when you miss the net, it is such a letdown on the bench mm-hmm. for a team. It is not a positive moment in the game to have a great opportunity in the slot and miss the net. That is a downer, cow. That's a horrible moment. And case in point, Bruce, why you do not count shots that miss the net was Connor McDavid's penalty shot. It, it, that's an opportunity. That's a golden opportunity, but that is not a great chance because you do, you don't hit the net. So there you go. Um, well, Mike, the argument, go sorry, the argument can be made that defensively you give up the great A chance for the other guys miss the net or not. But as soon as you start doing two different sets of parameters, then your count doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah. If you get tougher on giving up chances defensively, then you do crediting them offensively. So we've gone long time gone with. Shots on the net or off the iron, yeah. And uh, anything that misses the target, uh, no matter how ten bell a chance, like Carolina had one like two minutes into the game tonight, where the guy was all alone, where the Oilers were puck blocking, yes. and yes. and the guy was missed the top corner, and it was a sure goal if he hit the target, but not a scoring chance by our definition. And you know you can uh, discuss among yourselves. But ultimately, as long as we're consistent about how we apply it, you know, I mean, if we counted all of those, we'd be counting a few more chances each way every game. I don't suppose the overall data would be all that much different. It probably wouldn't be, although some players have a proclivity to get in that nice scoring chance spot and to miss the net. I think Josh Archibald is a pretty good uh, example of that this year. And um, th- th- listen, uh, there's a lot more. This is a subjective pro- uh, process that we're involved in, yeah. which we try to... <laughs> limit by having guidelines definitions by having two people go over it as we do but when you start to include missed chances then then i think you're really getting i'm pretty comfortable with how we find things yeah me too all right my uh good thing bruce was the mcdavid line i i didn't think um joachim nygaard uh was stellar on the line but i do think he kept up and um it was a it was an okay uh, first look at him on that line and enough to warrant another look I'm going to suggest that line was all those players on that line were plus two um, mm-hmm. mainly on the pl- on the backbone of two you know great Cassian goals I think McDavid, McDavid fed them both times mm-hmm. the second goal is the one that sticks out in my mind because it's fresher mm-hmm. maybe but um, just McDavid's great play protecting the puck behind the net um, and feeding Cassian in the not, slot. Negard was involved in that one. Got an so assist. He, he an put assist the puck in that. the right place there. So mm-hmm. I think Negard, what I like about him is he he's fast enough to keep up mm-hmm. uh, with Connor McDavid, and he's got some aggression in his game and some skill. I think that they might have a top six forward there, and I'd like to see him get a chance of six, seven games. I mean, James Neal has been used all year as a, in the top six. I don't mind seeing him in the in the bottom um, six uh, for you know on the third line and see move Negard up and see how that goes. I mean the Oilers may in the end decide to trade for another forward. I don't think they're there yet. I'd like to see Negard get that chance, and mm-hmm. I don't. And I'd like to see one of uh, Benson or Yamamoto get that chance if Negard doesn't make it. And and maybe then if if the Oilers haven't um, if the orders are still in the playoff run and no one's stepped up in that role, maybe then you make a trade. But I think there's still options that you look at internally before you go outside. And and McDavid was just fantastic tonight. He was flying out there. He's been fantastic. Um, he's taken over. 
Uh, he's easily there. You know, there was a debate earlier on that, you know, most people would have agreed Dreisaitl was better than McDavid in the first month and a half of the season. But yeah. Since then, McDavid has absolutely, Dreisaitl's yeah. been slumping and McDavid has absolutely been shining. He's game after game after game, he's playing well. The odd, give or take the odd defensive lapse in overtime. And he's, he, he had a fantastic game tonight, three points. So good for Connor McDavid, good for that line. And Zach Cassian, outside of maybe that penalty at the end, he, he was just so strong. He was such a becoming such a force as a player. And um, it was a weird penalty, which which uh, segues into your bad thing, Bruce. Yeah, my bad thing is bad penalties uh, and how and bad penalty killing on top of them. Uh, the Oilers took three bad penalties <laughs> in this game by my count. And all of them wound up on power play goals for um, Carolina. Uh, Nurse took a unnecessary elbowing call when he brought his arm way up on the guy behind the net. Cassian, to, uh, to me, what the penalty Cassian took with 10 seconds left in the first period is the worst penalty of the season by an Oiler to this point. And I was just beside myself when it happened. I said to my wife with about two minutes to go in the first period, two nothing. I said, this buzzer just can't get here soon enough. And it looked like they were finally going to survive. They had the puck. They were just breaking out of their own end. And Cassian ran a guy from behind and oh, yeah. in the numbers. Ten yeah. seconds left. And they couldn't even kill off the ten seconds, David. It was in the back of the net after six seconds on the power play. Three nothing. Uh, and that was, I mean, you'd think it'd be, that would have been the killer goal, especially for against an Oilers team that hasn't been able to score three goals on their home ice forever. Uh, but they actually did crawl their way back in the game. But once they made it, uh, Carolina made it 4-3, Cassian took that extra penalty. And, I mean, there, there's lots, there was of lots, of to, penalties. lots of room to beef on that penalty where Cassian really gave the goalie a tiniest love tap. And it looked like a six-on-one scrum against Cassian yeah. where they pried his helmet off and they were all pushing and shoving. But Mr. Referee saw the original infraction and didn't see any of the uh, retaliation, and Cassian was in the box, and sure enough, boom, 5-3, and then it really was over. So uh, for all that he had an uh, uh, excellent game tonight with uh, uh, absolutely outstanding underlying numbers, Zach Cassian, two bad, bad penalties that both hurt the team. Uh, fair enough, yeah. And um, I, I so honestly don't know how I'm going to grade him, David. Uh, he, you know, he played. He played about ninety-five percent of a real good game. <laughs> yeah, I guess if the Oilers' penalty killing had had been more successful, you wouldn't we wouldn't be thinking about it as much. That's the way it is when you with uh, penalties taken. But um, yeah. yeah, okay, Bruce. My bad thing is the Oilers' bottom forwards, not just the bottom six, but you know, because I want to include Juju Carre in that list. He's got to make that play, Bruce, on that. That 100%. slot play, like he didn't, he just, I don't know. Like anyone who plays hockey understands these things happens at any level. If you've ever played hockey, you understand that like mm -hmm. sometimes you just miss the puck, but a hell of a time to miss the puck in the slot. You finally come you know, back to tie the score. 10 minutes seemed, left, tie game, puck yeah. in your slot, huge chaos in front of your net. This is a good time to overskate the puck. It oh. seemed a little casual on his part. Like he just didn't bear down and, get that puck and obviously terrible, like terrible, terrible, terrible. And he, he, he felt bad. <laughs> he felt bad. But well, I would hope he felt bad. There's come on. Wrong yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. 
But I didn't like, uh, so the PK guys usually get the job done, and that's how they kind of rescue themselves from their ineffectual even strength play. Tonight, that wasn't the case. Oh. With the, you know, of course, Carolina was moving around the puck on the power play as if they were magicians, you know, just truly, just, you know, flipping the puck through the air and on purpose and hitting guys right on the stick. It was amazing. But at even strength, Bruce, we've long saying the praises or, or been hoping for Patrick Russell. He's got to do something. He's got to play better. He's got to make, he's got to make a goal happen. Um, Josh Archibald and Gaetan Haas on the fourth goal were both, um, the puck went through both of them into the slot. Haas uh, just was flying around, but not accomplishing anything. Riley Sheehan didn't get anything done at even strength. Uh, Marcus Granlin, he had one deflection on that, but other than that, nothing done at even strength. These guys, um, I'll tell you what, if, if they're going to be so weak at even strength, they've got to kill off all those penalties all the time. <laughs> and they've been well, doing mostly that. mostly they've been doing it. I think this is the first game all year the Oilers have given up more than one. I think there was one other they gave up. It may two. have been one. Yeah. They gave up two. Certainly the first one where they gave up three. Yeah. And um, so they've been they they have held their own because they've been so excellent on the PK, but not tonight. So they're my bad thing for tonight. Well, the Carolina's power play, as you say, were outstanding. I mean, they scored three goals in this game: two the first goal, and then two power play goals that were all scored from basically the same spot on the back door on Koskinen's left left side, where uh, they made a diagonal pass or deflection, or somehow they set up a guy right alone to slam it home from about six feet out. I mean, great goals. So Koskinen, I don't think he had any chance on any of those three goals, like no chance at all. Uh, the other ones, well, maybe you could make a case that he needed to make a save here or there. Oh, well, I don't know. Six yeah. Goal, six goal. I don't know. I didn't really have to fault it. I didn't have Koskinen at fault on any of them, but that grade F chance, that was a, such a smart play so. by Dougie Hamilton. <laughs> I, I, Dougie Hamilton looks like a We should get them to, to uh, sponsor our show. <laughs> Alrighty, what is your number? Uh, well, I got, just because I can't believe it, I have to go with this one. Minus 15. That is Oscar Clefbaum's plus minus in the last seven games. Minus 15 in seven games. <laughs> I mean, this is like Washington Capitals 1974-75 territory. Well, Bruce, he screened the hell out of the goalie on the on the fourth goal. Yeah, well, and he was part of the chaos. Yeah, and he he did. He was right in Koskinen's line of view, and you know that's really on Kara. But he also on the first goal. I don't know, Mm -hmm. like Nuge. Nuge was right by the goal scorer, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Who was the goal scorer on the first one? He was right by the guy. Aho, aho, the the, the, Igor Larionov of the. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very, he was right. Very good comparable he was right guy. beside him, and then he got mm-hmm. puck watching, got all obsessed with the puck, like so many skilled oh. foilers on the on foilers, skilled forwards on the Oilers always do. For years now, we've been seeing this. These greatly skilled players, they just zero in on that puck, and he lost. He lost Aho, sneaky little Aho, and Clefbaum was also a puck watching a little bit, mm-hmm. and. Um, 
they both lost track of Aho, and bam, the puck's in the net a second later. So at least on two of those, I pegged <laughs> two of the goals tonight. Well, the third earned his his uh, minus mark. Minus, yeah. Well, I think uh, I wrote about it in the pregame because he's been minus twelve in the previous six games, and I think I tabbed him up, and I think he was he was at fault on seven of the twelve. So now and nine tonight up. it was two of the three, and that and of course the last one was that one from center ice where everybody on the Oilers that got a minus was an innocent bystander. I mean. Yes, but so he's nine. What of the 15. hell is they going to do on that? Yes, nine of fifteen in the last that is, games yeah, seven games. That includes at, tonight. Yeah, at even strength, zero for fourteen against, and then one shorty against also. So uh, even good players have defensive slumps, oh. and and Clefbaum, he is a good player. But this is why I'm, is. I never buy into the hype about Oscar. Like like there's a lot of people who who will say Oscar Clefbaum is one of the elite. You know, a lot of Oilers fans really believe he's one of the best defensemen in the NHL and like a really elite defenseman. I don't see it. I think he's a really, he, I think he's a top four defenseman in the NHL and he's a good player. Mm-hmm. But there are too many defensive mistakes on an ongoing basis with Oscar Clefbaum and there have been for years. And he goes in these defensive slumps now and then. He can play well, really well for stretches as well, but he's just too inconsistent a player defensively to be in that you know, to be considered, I think, in the in the top 30 NHL demon. I don't have him yeah. there. In his defense, in this in this seven-game span, uh, he's he's had a tough run of partners. He had to play with uh, uh, the rookie Caleb Jones for a while, uh, yeah. just before Jones got sent down. Uh, then he got put out with Adam Larson, and they got caved for minus four in one game against Ottawa. And then they put him with... Uh, they put him down on the third pairing there for uh, uh, for a game. Uh, who the heck did he even play with? Uh, oh, um, yeah, no, the, no, no. It's the guy they just sent down, Joel Pearson. Yeah. And so he's been playing musical partners, and all of the partners that he's played with have also been struggling. But uh, yeah, I'd like to think yeah. Oscar would settle them down a little bit, and it's just been a tire fire. I thought Jones was pretty good tonight, actually. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I nearly named him as my good thing. Yeah, he no, was I, I thought he made some good. He was thinking offensively, he, but he was scooting back into position as opposed to puck watching, which was his problem before he went down. Yeah, and he was looking like he wants to play in the NHL, like make some plays, like I, I'm yeah. going to seize this opportunity, mm-hmm. which is which is the, what players have to do, right? Like Cassian's done that clearly since he's moved up, seize that, seize the day, and um, we've seen it with Ethan Bear. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to see it with two players in the next month, Negard and, um, Jones and Koskinen, of course, <laughs> but that's a different story. He's, I mean, he's Koskinen has been inconsistent. Um, although we, we've only really seen one bad game and that was last yeah. week from yes. Koskinen. And I, I don't even think, I wouldn't even say this was a bad game. This is a weird game and you're playing red army and they're going to make you look bad on a limited number of, uh, it was Ken Dryden against red army tonight. Yeah, or Team Canada. They, they laid they laid in a dollar dollar short on those eight way passing plays across the <laughs> slot. Larionov to Karuta or to Makarov uh, uh-huh. is what we saw tonight with uh, Teravainen and Aho, spectacular uh-huh. hockey players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, that tip pass by uh, Teravainen to Aho on the first goal that was all world. I, I think he did it on purpose. It was either an incredibly fluky deflection, uh, 
that he was trying to put on net and he tipped off wide at a slow rate, or it was one where he tried to take something off and chip it into the area where Ajo <laughs> could finish the play. And I saw it as the latter. It looked like a real elite play by Toivu Taravainen. My number is two, as in two minutes. And and so I've been uh, listening to the audiobook of Ken Dryden's uh, biography of Scotty Bowman which is really um, a kind of a recitation of Bowman's an analysis of the top eight hockey NHL teams of all time. Oh, yeah. And um, it's a, it's a fantastic uh, oh. audio book. Probably if you want to read the book, it's good, but I, I like do. audio. I like audio books now. Anyway, the, uh, the, the most, there was one stat that just clobbered me over the head, Bruce. And Ken Dryden said that in the 1950s, the average shift length, was two minutes long and he brought this up in the context of when Henri Richard made the Canadians as a 19 year old they were excited about him because he could actually play three minutes at a time he played and it threw off the other team him playing three minutes at a time and this is of course the segue here is Leon Dreisaitl's long shifts and uh tonight he had a number of shifts you know most of his really long shifts are are on the power play but he also has these even strength shifts, and you'll hear, I think we heard Ramenda talk about Leon being out there with, I think, straight legs was the, you know, he, yeah. not not able to bend his legs anymore because he's leaning over, he's so tired, which happens to be after about five seconds of every one of my beer league shifts. Happens to Leon after about 55 seconds, and he had a number of shifts, at least two or three, where he's out there, even strength, tired as hell, not getting off the ice. And it's because he just wants to score. He wants to, he, he's desperate to make something happen and score a goal, and he just, he hangs out there too long in that hope that he's going to get that break to make the big play. And it's starting to, um, it's a bad habit that he's got to break and his coach is going to have to break it for him. Like with some stern medicine, I think if Leon doesn't hear, hear the message from the coach himself, because I don't, I don't think Tippett's saying, we'll just stay out there as long as you think Leon. And, and yeah. cause I trust you. And I think you're Phil Esposito and you can have a two or three minute shift. I mean, or because we were living in 1955, uh -huh. um, two minute shifts. Okay. It ain't okay. When everyone else is sprinting, yeah. And you're only able to jog mm -hmm. because you're so damn tired. Mm -hmm. What do you, do you think Tippett's saying? Well, I mean, we, we, we don't know, but I'm looking at Leon's shifts from tonight, and he played. Uh, he had 22 shifts, and 14 of them were over one minute in duration. And the Oilers only had what four power plays, of which uh, uh, two were overlapping. So it's not like those were all power play shifts. They just that's just not even possible. And in addition to that, 59 seconds, 56, uh, 53, you know, so not very many of the sort of 40 to 45 seconds that's considered to be the sort of ideal in the in the modern NHL. And I'm not sure that uh, uh, McDavid was much different, to tell the truth, because he played, uh, he had the same average, one minute, four seconds per shift, uh, he had one that was three minutes and 13 seconds, for goodness sake. And then uh, that must have been a power play. Another one that was two minutes and 51 seconds. That was a two-man advantage. Uh, but uh, same thing, you know, eight to ten shifts uh, of over one minute long. 
So what I think might be the answer, and like I know that McDavid and Drysaddle have been so strong at even strength this year, but mm-hmm. in terms of a reset for Leon Drysaddle, like to get him back to his game, mm-hmm. maybe the message should be: okay, you're going to be center. You're, you are the center of the second line, and you'll have Nuge and um, whoever else is your winger. Kara can he's fine. Um, you'll have two good wingers like. Nuge is a very good winger, and Kara's not bad at this point. Like I, I don't actually mind him in that role, but your your only job, Leon, is to is to play fifty seconds at a time of solid defensive hockey. When you go on the ice, that's what you're thinking: fifty seconds of solid defensive hockey, where you're taking care of every single responsibility. You're back checking like you can. You're playing down low like you can. You're sealing off everything down there, and that's a success. If you do that, you've succeeded on the night because you know, of course, that the other stuff is going to come. But he just to the reset for him might be that. How does that sound? Yeah, well, the defensive side of the game. I mean, tonight he was minus one, and uh, much as plus minus has its flaws, and you know, especially <clears throat> in who's responsible, which is what our project tries to zero in in a little bit better. But he's been a minus player, minus player, not even even a minus player for eight consecutive games, eight in a row. And that's our, you know, top player. And when our top guys are losing the goal differential battle, uh, the chances of the team winning are not very high at all. I'm going to do a post tomorrow on this. Like, I know you dug into this today, and I'm going to dig into it. But we're just looking at our scoring chance mm-hmm. data for Clefbaum and Dreisaitl, um mm-hmm. in, in during this uh, slump period. So it's eight games for Dreisaitl. Eight minus saying. games in a row. And, and over for the last Clefbaum, 12, he's been minus 13. So maybe I'll, I'll maybe I'll go twelve games back and and have a look, and um, yeah, he his I, I know that his his scoring grade A scoring chances mm-hmm. plus minus was, which is what we track has plummeted. He was up there even with McDavid and Cassian, who's been shooting up, and he's way behind them now. Uh, so he's been not creating much, and he's been leaking grade A chances against because we're looking for in, individual responsibility, and it's mm-hmm. not been good. Yeah. Well, what what we're seeing. Um, is um, a combination of those guys, you know, having logged a lot of minutes early in the season, the big, three yeah. big minute munchers, the two forwards, and, uh, and Clefbaum, who's leading the league and average ice time for a while. And <clears throat> we've seen it a couple times in overtime where it's obvious where the other team has attacked Dry Saddle and McDavid late in their shift, late in their long shift. Uh, I, I don't know how much. We might find that that's happened at uh, at even strength, uh, but at, when he's skating with straight legs, like Romenda said, that is a pretty darn good time to attack. And uh, yeah. they've they've got they've got to change that up somehow. I thought the the plan tonight with the uh, uh, with the them being on two different lines was to get those lines rolling a bit more. And I, I said to my wife just before the game started, I said I, I really like to see them cut down on the shift length for these guys. But when you look at the bottom line, here they are both well over one minute per shift again. And you, could, I think if you take the penalties out of that, it'll be right down around one minute, but it won't be anywhere near 50 or 45 seconds. Like they're, they're oversaying. And uh, it's uh, clearly costing. Yeah, I think McDavid can still get, he's getting away with it because he's just flying out there. But right now, Leon is struggling. You know, to, to, to be fair to Settle tonight, we didn't, I didn't have him. And you're going to review my work, of course, but mm-hmm. I didn't have him as a, making a mistake on any grade A chances against. Right. So, yeah. 
So to be fair, and he, and he made two contributions to grade A chances for. I didn't mind his line. I thought that line was a part of the comeback. They were Nugent Hopkins, Drysaddle, and Kara had a few good shifts in there. They were, you know, they were part of the momentum going forward. And um, yeah, they they Drysaddle uh, contributed to Larson's chance that went off the crossbar that was deflected in the the slot. And um, actually, did I have two Adam Larson chances? Well, so yeah, Leon Leon was at fault on the one good shorthanded chance that Fogel had. Uh, yeah, he coughed the puck up, and they went down and got a great chance. So, but at even strength. Oh yeah, that was a, you're right. That was on the power play. Yeah, Edmonton's power play. Yeah, and Edmonton. I do have a markdown for that. You're right, Bruce. I missed that on my initial scan. Alrighty, so the next game is against the Minnesota Wild in Minnesota. Well, yeah. I'm actually glad they're going on the road, David, because they've been much better on the road than they are at home. I mean, here they came home, they played one against Vancouver uh, at the end of their long road trip, then they went to Vancouver for one. So technically it was only a four-game homestand, but they played five home games in 10 days. And they got blitzed. One, one, three, and one, 11, four, 20 against. They got smoked, uh, you know, right on their home ice. And four of the teams they played, Carolina was the only playoff team of the five. In fact, the other four teams they played, none of them was even in the top 22 in the NHL last year. They were all got teams right down near the bottom. And for whatever, the teams just flatter, flat as a pancake. I, I, I still like this team, Bruce. I think they've got the defensive depth to to hang in there, and the bottom six forwards are fast enough um, to to hang in there. And it so it really comes down to, you know, will the goalies keep hanging in there? And it's kind of a coin flip, but uh, I'll say mm. it's heads. <laughs> heads, the Oilers win. All right. Yeah, well, something's got to happen to... Uh, to uh... Uh, turn things around. I mean, we're looked look like down the QE2, and I think Calgary's won six in a row, and all of a sudden they're two points behind, and that big bulge Edmonton had built up over them has almost dissipated to nothing with 50 games left. Ah, uh, yeah. When they tied it up tonight, I had visions of two points dancing in my head for, I did for a few seconds, although I was still not breathing. <laughs> mm. Oh, well. All right. Thanks for talking tonight, Bruce. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, everybody. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.